All right, if you would, open up to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 2. The Gospel of Luke in chapter 2. Last time we were here, we saw something pretty amazing take place in this passage. We, we had some shepherds out in the fields of Bethlehem settling in for the night with their sheep, and they were suddenly shaken to the core by the appearance of angels, a brilliant, breathtaking, soul-piercing light lit up everything around them, uh, the glory of the Lord with its weight penetrating their soul, and then this message that the Messiah had come. And by the time that eventful night was over, those shepherds had seen the newborn baby Jesus for themselves, and they were telling people who he was. This morning... We see what happened next in the account of the early days of Jesus' life. So look with me beginning in verse 21. Beginning in verse 21. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, in these four verses... Luke is bringing us to an encounter that Joseph and Mary are going to have with two important people as they visit the temple in Jerusalem. We are going to meet Simeon. We're going to meet Anna. But along the way, we are being reminded of something crucial. Even though we're reading in the New Testament portions of our Bibles... Jesus was born into an Old Testament family. That is, Joseph and Mary belonged to the ancient nation of Israel who were still living at this time under the covenant with God that had been made hundreds and hundreds of years earlier at Mount Sinai. They were still living under the terms of that covenant that their nation had made with God all those centuries ago. You can call it the Old Covenant, you can call it the Mosaic Covenant, you can call it the Sinaitic Covenant, whatever you call it, here is what it amounted to. The nation of Israel had entered into a relationship with the true God. And this was unique among all the other nations of the world. Um, Israel was the only nation to have this kind of relationship with the Creator God. The other nations of the world were pagan nations, nations in darkness, nations worshiping mythological gods. But God had revealed Himself to Israel while she was still enslaved to the Egyptians. He had miraculously delivered her out of her slavery, brought her to this mountain called Sinai, 
formally entered into this legal covenant with that nation. And God preached the gospel to Israel. God promised a coming Messiah to Israel. A Messiah who would reign in righteousness forever. A Messiah who would make things right. And he preached the gospel in the priesthood. And he preached the gospel through the temple and all the rituals and the the ceremonies. The covenant that God made with Israel said that as long as they trusted God and sought to follow him, their sins would be forgiven through sacrifice. And he would be their God and they would be his people. It was a gracious covenant. It was a merciful covenant. And to faithful Israelites, this was the highest honor of all. To be in relationship with God. This is why why the ancient Jews were so proud of their heritage. Right? We have a relationship with God. That's the world Jesus was born into. The world of old covenant Israel. And his parents, Mary, we know she conceived as a virgin. Joseph stepping in to care for him as his son. Joseph and Mary were faithful Israelites. This young couple trusted God, loved God, and intended to follow him. And in these four verses, we see this young couple carrying out the terms of the Old Covenant. That is, they're keeping the commands that God had handed down to them. In particular, what we have in these four verses is this young couple obeying Leviticus 12. So I'm just going to read to you Leviticus 12, verses 1 through 8, because here is the background of what in the world is going on with these pigeons and turtle doves, right? This is the background. Leviticus 12, beginning in verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child... Then she shall be unclean seven days. Well, Mary conceived. She bore a male child. So she's been unclean seven days. As at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. On what day? The eighth day. And what does our passage have? On the eighth day, they circumcised the young boy. Then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying She shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are complete. Moving down to verse 6. When the days of her purifying are complete, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old, for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. So after eight days, circumcision of the child... And then after the time of purification are over, you go to the temple and make a sacrifice. He shall offer it before the Lord to make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. If she cannot afford a lamb, she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering, the other for a sin offering. The priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean. So what we have here... In Luke 2, is Joseph and Mary obeying commands given by God to Israel as part of the covenant that they were in? Okay, what does that have to do with us? After all, we live in a very different place and time. 
We now know from passages like in Hebrews that the old covenant that God made with Israel, that that covenant is over and done, was completely fulfilled in Christ. It's come to an end. The modern nation of Israel is not in that covenant with God. That covenant is over. We who are Christians are in a covenant with God. We're in what's called the new covenant. And it's also a gracious covenant. It's a covenant that says whoever will come to God through Jesus Christ will be saved. And like ancient Israel, we've received truth from God. In fact, we have way more truth than even ancient Israel had. We have received commands from God that teach us how to live as a people who belong to him. We have God as our father. We are his children. We are sinners who have found forgiveness in Jesus Christ. We're now to live in the joy of that salvation. And in the joy of that salvation, we're to live a life that honors the God that saved us. What we have here is a remarkable example of godly parenting. What we have is a particular example to us of how Christian parents should treat the law of God. You see, we're in a strange place in our culture. Christians are increasingly looking at other Christians who are trying to faithfully keep the commands of God and they're calling them legalists. And we see it all the time. Oh, you don't watch movies with sexually explicit scenes? You must be a legalist. Oh, uh, you're against gambling, even if it's just playing the lottery every once in a while for fun? That's legalism. I especially see it with Christians who hold a conviction about being committed to being here at church. There's simply no question that God expects Christians to be convictionally committed to gathering with their local church when it is meeting But in our day right now, if you have that conviction, you can expect others will point the finger at you and call you a legalist. And I just want to be clear. It is not legalism to be serious about keeping the commands of God. It is not legalism to trust Jesus enough to actually live out the things that he's called us to do. What others call legalism is actually obedient Christianity. True Christianity. It's being doers of the word and not hearers only. We are to follow the example that we have in these four verses of showing our faith by convictional, committed obedience. Now, legalism is a real thing and it's terrible. Legalism is when you obey God's commands in an effort to earn his favor. Legalism is when you obey God's commands because you think somehow you're meriting your own salvation. And legalism is wicked because it refuses to see that God has already done everything necessary to make you right with him through Jesus Christ. Jesus is all our hope. Jesus is all our righteousness before God. We can never be good enough to merit God's favor and we cannot add a thing to what Jesus has done. Legalism makes light of the cross. Legalism demeans the reason that Jesus came to earth. Mount Hermon, we don't ever want to be legalists. But I continue to suggest what I think is blatantly obvious. 
that the greater issue in the American church is not legalism, but licentiousness. Do you hear the word license in that word licentiousness? Licentiousness is the idea that the gospel gives you a license to sin. Oh, sin's not a big deal anymore. I'm forgiven. You see, people around us are buying into this demonic lie that you can be a true Christian while playing fast and loose with the law of God, while ignoring His commands, neglecting His commands, treating sin as something small. People are buying into the unbiblical idea that you can keep on living your own life based on your own feelings, based on your own whims, with little regard for what God has actually said, and still call yourself a Christian. Remember, a Christian is someone who follows Christ, is a disciple, learns what Jesus has to say, and then keeps it. This is so fundamental, but we have to come back to this from time to time. A Christian is somebody who trusts Jesus. And if you trust Jesus, you'll do what he says. If parents love their children, and what we're looking here at, at in this passage is, is a young couple who's raising a very young, right now, infant child. If parents love their children, they will teach them from an early age that the commands of God are good The commands of God are wise. The commands of God are life-giving. To spurn the commands of God is to spurn God Himself. And you know what I think is most remarkable about this passage? Mary's around 14. Most scholars think Mary's around 14, Joseph probably around 20. This This is a young couple who in every step of these verses is seeking to keep their covenant with God by obeying Him. And they're not trying to merit God's favor. They're not trying to earn their salvation. They knew Joel 2 in their Old Testament Bibles, everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. They, they know that. They also know what the prophets preached over and over again. Those who know the Lord obey the Lord. We're not saved by works, but real saving faith shows itself in acts of obedience. And so I think this is a great passage to just speak to those in this room who are parents. Do you have such a high regard for the commands of God given to you? And are you passing down a lifestyle of obedience to God to your children? Are you teaching your children that the commands of God are good and sweet? Are your children learning from you and your example that the law of the Lord is sweeter than honey and better than gold? Psalm 119 verse 1. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, whose walk, who walk in the law of the Lord. Do you want to be blessed? <laughs> Do you want to be called blessed? Blessed are those whose way is blameless. Well, nobody's perfect. Who's that? Those who walk in the law of the Lord. Or listen to these verses a little further down. How can a young man keep his way pure? We're all struggling with temptation, aren't we? Every day. And we want to do the right thing. We want to follow the right path. We want to honor the God who saved us. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. 
With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. Is that how you came to church this morning? Hungry for more wisdom of God? Or do you treat the commands, the instructions of God as burdensome? For the psalmist, this is what it looks like to seek God with your whole heart. You you learn His commandments. You love His commandments. You thank God for His commandments. Because they are light in a dark and confusing world. And then in faith, praying for God's help, knowing that Jesus is our total salvation, we seek to honor God by keeping His commandments. The New Testament is full of commandments. Don't ever say and don't ever think, well, commandments were just for the Old Testament people of God. And the New Testament, we're all about grace, not rules. Dear friends, the rules of God are a gift of grace. If you don't understand that, you're you're not understanding the law of God correctly. What kind of a father who loves his children gives them no instruction? What kind of a savior who has redeemed us by his mercy then leaves us on our own to figure out how to be holy? It is an expression of God's love to you, is an expression of your savior's kindness to you that he gives you commands in the Bible to shape your life just as we see Joseph and Mary's life being shaped by these commands that they've been taught ever since they were young. This is what you're to do. When you have a child, follow these commands. Act in these ways. It is a sickness pervading the American church that Christians treat the gift of God's commands as unchristian. And that under the guise of grace, we are returning to a life of following our flesh and living according to our own whims rather than living according to the trustworthy and wise blessed laws of God. There is freedom in the law of God. There is slavery in following your heart. Parents, we must help our children be convictionally committed to obeying God. And that begins with our own example. Young adults, teens in this room. Mary and Joseph already said 14 and 20 years old. So I think this passage particularly has application to you. Some people have this idea that teenagers and 20-somethings are immature, ungodly, incapable of honoring God, incapable of handling responsibility. This passage says differently. We see Joseph and Mary acting with maturity, responsibility, obedient, committed to keeping the good commands of God. I'm thankful we see much of that in many of you in this room, and I pray that it will abound may you continue to stick out in your generation by being faithful by having a firm conviction and commitment that that you will not have that you will not allow to be easily shaken all of us in this room do we need to be convicted by the holy spirit of willful disobedience Do we need to be convicted of claiming to love Jesus and follow him while in fact we're actually neglecting his commands whenever they're inconvenient for us? When what I want crosses what Jesus has said, what do I actually do? 
And who is my true master? Now, in verse 21, verse 21, we see Joseph and Mary do for Jesus what we previously saw with the infant John the Baptist. We've seen this before with Zechariah and Elizabeth and the baby John. Friends and family were gathered around for John's circumcision, for the giving of his name. We saw that by circumcising their son, John, they were showing that he too was a part of Israel. And now with Joseph and Mary and Jesus, they're circumcising Jesus to say he is a member of this covenant people. He is part of that nation that is in relationship with God. This is one way that our covenant, the new covenant, is different from the old covenant that Jesus was born into. In the old covenant arrangement, all the children of Israelites were made members of that covenant through circumcision. Male infants were brought into that covenant through circumcision, and females were brought into that covenant by being under the headship of a circumcised male. So all you had to do to be in the covenant that God made with Israel is to be born to an Israelite family, and then if you're a male, to be circumcised. So all of these people were in this covenant, though honestly, the vast majority of them were unbelieving and rebellious and idolatrous. Make sure you mark this. Joseph and Mary were a minority among the Jews. Faithful, God-trusting, God-loving Israelites, they were not the majority in Israel's history. The vast majority of God's people in ancient Israel rejected him, chased after the Baals. In the New Covenant, children are not automatically brought into the covenant of God. And that's because in Jeremiah 31, we're told that this is what makes the New Covenant different. Everyone in this covenant knows the Lord. Everyone in this covenant has the Spirit of God within them. So you become a part of the new covenant, not by being born, but by being born again. Uh, By our God-ordained, we we have a God-ordained, God-instituted ceremony for showing that we're included in the new covenant, and it's not circumcision, it's baptism. That's our ceremony by which we say, here is someone new who has entered into this covenant and is part of the people of God. They've been born again. They believe on Jesus. And here is this ceremony by which we show that. We do need to note here, however, how important it was that Jesus was circumcised. I think that's an odd thing to think about. I mean, why, why is that important? You would go to hell if he wasn't circumcised. You ever thought about that? That that's at stake here? Because had Jesus not been circumcised, he would not have been included among the people of Israel, and therefore he would not have been qualified to be our Savior. In other words, your salvation, my salvation, heaven and hell, they are at stake when Joseph and Mary are making this decision whether or not to obey the commands of God. And had they, for some reason, chosen not to circumcise Jesus, not to include him in the people of Israel, we would not have a Savior. Because the promised Savior was to be one who would be an Israelite indeed. The truest Israelite, the true child of Abraham, the one with utmost faith in his heart. 
The Messiah would be the one who would fulfill the old covenant laws perfectly as no one had ever done. Way back in Genesis 17, listen to what God told Abraham. He said, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from a foreigner who is not your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Hear this. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. In other words, had Jesus not been circumcised, he would not have been part of Old Covenant Israel. He could not have fulfilled the law of God. He would not have been the promised Messiah. He would not have been the qualified Savior that brings you to God. So it's just a verse. It's even just a phrase in there. When he was circumcised. But do you see how important the obedience of Joseph and Mary was? In light of what we just heard from Genesis, we should praise God that Joseph and Mary were faithful in this matter. That they were obeying the commands of God and taking it seriously. And it's here at this ceremony that they give Jesus his name. And you'll remember from our earlier study with John that this is how Orthodox Jews continue to operate today. And we think the practice goes back to at least the first century. On the eighth day, the male is circumcised and the name is announced. And remember, among Orthodox Jews, you don't say the name of the child until the eighth day. Even the dad and the mom don't say the name to each other out loud until the eighth day. It's It's a special significant thing among Orthodox Jews. And so it's a big deal on, the, on that eighth day when they declare the name of the child. But in this case, Joseph and Mary don't get to choose the name. Because God has revealed the name, his name for this child. He revealed the name through the angel Gabriel. This child shall be called. Very good. Of all the names. Of all the names. Jesus. The meaning of this name, it means salvation. That's appropriate. Jesus came to seek and to save those who are lost. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved. And what is the name by which we may be saved? Salvation, namely Jesus, which means salvation. Salvation is found in no other name but this name. Of all the names God could have chosen for his son, this is the name that was chosen. Why? Because this is the one thing above everything else that we're to think of when we think of Jesus, Savior. I am lost and hell-bound and unworthy of peace with God. And through Jesus, there is peace. Through Jesus, there is reconciliation. Through Jesus, I am rescued Yes, he is Lord. Yes, he is the bridegroom of his bride. Yes, he is the great champion. Yes, he is the great physician of souls. Yes, he is the good shepherd. But above above everything else, he is Savior. The history of this name, Joseph and Mary called Jesus Yeshua. That's how he probably would have heard it, right? You have to understand Yeshua, Hebrew, 
became uh, Jesus in Greek, which became Jesus in Latin, which became Jesus in English. So we say Jesus, but Jesus probably would have heard Joseph and Mary calling him by saying Yeshua. And I say that because I want you to hear it's actually the Hebrew word for Joshua. Jesus in the New Testament is the same name as Joshua in the Old Testament. So there is some history to this name. Joshua in the Old Testament leads the people of God into the promised land. And the Joshua of the Old Testament was a shadow of the true Joshua to come. The Yeshua to come who would lead all of God's people from every tongue, tribe, and nation into the promised land of heaven itself. And then there's the power of this name. It would be in this name that demons would be cast out. It would be in the, in the power of this name that blind men would suddenly see and crippled men would suddenly leap and, and dead men would return from the grave itself. Here is the name of God appointed to be the name of His power. The name of the one who could perform all miracles. Indeed, everyone who is called on the name of the Lord, and remember what Paul does with that Joel 2 passage, everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh, in Romans 10, Paul says, yeah, that Yahweh, his name is Jesus. Everyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. And when we talk about the name of Jesus, it's not just a word as if, as if we're saved by calling on a magical word. Did you call on the name of Jesus? Jesus, that word saved. It's not the word. The word stands for the person. The name stands for who it is. We are saved by calling on the one to whom the name refers. We are saved by calling out to the very Son of God. And the Son of God goes by the name Jesus. This name carries weight. Because of who Jesus is and his sovereign role that he fulfills in our world. Uh, if you work in an office and you say to somebody in your office, uh, go run these copies. They may just look at you. But if you say, Rob said go run these copies and Rob's the boss. They're probably going to run the copies. Right? Because Rob's name has some weight because he's the boss. He writes the paychecks. Right? In nations with monarchies, it's a big deal when a command is given in the name of the king. If a peasant comes up and says, in the name of me, that doesn't mean anything. But in the name of the king, that changes everything. There's a reason that demons fled the name of Jesus. They know he has power over them. Power to cast them into hell itself. And even at eight days old, even as a little baby... This name carried great power because of who Jesus was and the role he had been born to fill. Just as a young prince in a kingdom may still be only an infant, but that prince's name still holds power because of who he is. For Christians, the name of Jesus is precious to us because Jesus is precious to us. One of my favorite hymns, we sing it a lot, how sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrow, and heals his wounds, and drives away his fear. It makes the wounded spirit whole. It calms the troubled breast. It is manna to the hungry soul, and it is to the weary rest. 
What is the name of Jesus to you this morning? Is it the name of your Savior? Or God forbid, is it the name of your enemy? Is Jesus the name you have called upon again and again in praise, in petition? Or honestly, is it a name that seldom crosses your mind and even less seldom crosses your lips? It is a divisive name. The name of Jesus has been loved and praised and adored. And the name of Jesus has been mocked and scorned and hated. This name has been called upon in prayer through tears and heartache. And this name has been used as a curse word. For many, the name of Jesus is offensive. And for others, it's the sweetest name they know. Wherever people stand today, according to Philippians 2, there is coming a day when the name of Jesus will ring out and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we're going to stop right here this morning, but here's how I want to end. Have you ever come to the place in your life where you have really and truly called out on the name of Jesus? Have you ever run to him for salvation in your heart? Have you ever declared your allegiance to him through baptism and through church membership? Drawn that line in the sand and said, whatever else, I'm going to follow Christ as my only hope before God. And if you're here and you're a Christian, I just want to make sure you understand what that means for you. Because just as in a marriage, a bride typically takes on her husband's name. So when you were baptized in the name of Jesus, you took on that name. You're now called a Christian. And so you now are to walk as one who represents Christ with his name upon you. And so let us look to God for grace and let us seek to walk worthy of the one who has loved us. Let us seek to represent well the name of the one who has saved us. If you have any questions, anything you want to ask me about, anything going on in your heart, as soon as this service is over, I'll be down front right here. Our ushers will be in the back with open Bibles if you want to give to the Gideons. Let's pray. Let's pray together.